As you're turning to Genesis 36, I'll remind you to remember our mission team in prayer. They left yesterday for Monterey, Mexico. They'll be here this, be there the whole week, working with a local church plant effort. It'll be 107 degrees is the average there, but it'll be a dry heat, I'm sure. So there'll be much comfort for them in that reality. But keep them in prayer throughout the week, and we look forward to hearing their report when they come back. Genesis 36. I'll bet you have not read this chapter in a while. Maybe the only time you ever read it is when you were doing your annual Bible reading uh, plan. Uh, Genesis 36. What we have here is the genealogy of Esau. You remember Esau, the other son of Isaac, the one who is not the chosen son, the non-covenant son, if you will. Jacob had returned to the promised land, and then he and Esau parted ways, and Esau went to the south of Israel and occupied the land of Seir, and that's where he went. We don't hear much about, we don't hear anything about Esau, the person, after this passage, but Esau, the nation, Edom, we see them all throughout the scriptures moving forward from here in the Old Testament and into the New. So this is one of the main reasons I would imagine the Lord in his wisdom has this genealogy placed here. Remember something else. There was an original people who read Genesis, the very first people. And those people were the people of Moses when he put it to pen or to quill. When he wrote it, um, he was putting now by the Holy Spirit's guidance um, into the record what had happened up to that point. The history of the world and the history of the calling out of God's people through the patriarchs. He's also giving the people of Israel at that time um, an identity, who they are in the world. And so part of that is to know who else is in the world and especially who would be occupying the place God was about to call them to. And the Edomites were some of the main occupants of Canaan in the days of Moses. So to put it in a time frame for you if this helps, Abraham lived at 2000 B.C., the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph spanned 200 years to about 1800 B.C. Then there's 400 plus years that go on when they're in Egypt, growing as a nation under slavery, and then Moses leads them out in the Exodus in around 1450 B.C. Shortly thereafter, he puts to pen Genesis by the ministry of the Spirit. So that genealogy for those Israelites would have given them a sense of the world around them, in the place they have in it, where they're going to go. But there's more there. Believe it or not, there's more there, and we'll see that. So here now, as I read God's holy word, this is Genesis 36. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Naboth. And Ada bore Esau Eliphaz. Basemath bore Ruel. And Oholibamah bore Jewish, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock, so Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. 
These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Rule, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatim, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore Esau, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau. The chiefs, Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Getam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz the, in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, the chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife, the chiefs Jush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholibamah, the daughter of Anna, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Heman, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Menahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Ea, and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishon, and Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Sharon. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, Achan. These are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobel, Zibion, Anna, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhabah. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah, of Bozrah, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Hushim, the, the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. Hushim died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avath. Hadad died, and Samla of Mesrachah reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shal of Rehoboth and on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shual died, and Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of the city being Pau. His wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mehezabeb. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names. The chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jehath, Aholibama, Elah, Panan, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdael, and Aram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. 
Now, one assignment for the fathers in the room, read this passage before you eat lunch today as a good priest of your home. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, before this week of study, I don't think that I have read this passage since it was a requirement in Bible college. I'm guessing most of us have never heard Genesis 36 read aloud before. But, Father, we do believe that your word is truth, and it is profitable for us. It is profitable for us to give heed to the reading of your word, every bit of it. Help us now by your Holy Spirit to glean wisdom from this inspired listing of Esau's progeny. There is much to learn even from a genealogy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are several places in Genesis where Moses gives a genealogy. They're called Toledotes. There are at least eight of them where he lists someone and gives their progeny. He'll often start with the the group that's unchosen, the ones who are not the chief covenant bearers. We see this with Cain. We see it with Ishmael, and now we see it in the case of Esau. The generations of Esau. I made mention in the introduction, and I say it to you again, think of the original audience. Any competent Bible study, when you're doing it, you want to ask the question and answer the question, who are the first people who read this book or this letter or this book of poetry, whatever it may be? Because that will help you to understand the angle of the author. Now, we recognize that's not ultra necessary as the Spirit of God speaks through a human author, and inscripturates his word, uh, and it's good for all generations. But each generation would do well to get behind a bit and see what angle this is coming from, and that's important for us as we try to understand the purpose of a genealogy like this. Israel, when they first received this word from Moses, needed a refresher about their identity as the covenant people. They had been enslaved by Egypt for centuries. Now they were to assume the covenant identity, and they would have to know the nations they would come against, and the Edomites were all around them. When they would go from Egypt to the promised land, they would almost immediately come upon the Edomites. By the time that Moses is writing, Edomites had spread off into all sorts of other groups that are mentioned or alluded to here. You recognize Amalek, the Amalekites, someone that the Israelites fought over and over again throughout their history. So Moses is educating Israel, at least at first level, there's more to it than this, but at first level, to give them a sense of their belonging to God as the favored covenant people. Esau, the father of the Edomites, is mentioned here because it has a lasting impact on Israel's dealings going forth. But there's more here for us. I would point out to you when studying a genealogy like this, there is always more than meets the eye. So I would like to point out at least five biblical themes. These are themes or recurring storylines or concepts that occur throughout the Bible, and we see here coming forth from this genealogy. The genealogy of Esau demonstrates these biblical themes, and at least five of them could be noted. First and foremost, we see what a family line Esau has. We know who Esau is. He's no spiritual man, yet God has poured out blessings upon him that Kings are born from him. Chiefs or dukes come from him. It's, it's a robust nation with all sorts of lines, and it's spread all out. When you're Moses first reciting this for the Israelites who had just come out of slavery, waiting for the covenant promises, and then you see Esau's line. They already had kings before Israel ever had a king. It's quite a story of God's faithful promise-keeping to a person who didn't deserve any of it, but it's because God made a promise. He is the perfect, faithful promise keeper to all. When he says he'll do something, he'll do it. In Genesis 25, you remember when 
Rebekah was going to give birth. She had twins. And it says in Genesis 25, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And this is what the Lord said to Rebekah. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Well, if Esau's the older and the weaker, which he is ultimately, what a blessing of God to make him a nation like this. He didn't just make him any nation. He made him a powerful nation in the head of other nations, the Edomites. It's interesting that Jacob never saw nearly the, brief, the earthly blessings that Esau did. They were realized after Jacob and are still to be realized ultimately. But Esau, he receives much from the hand of God, even if he doesn't acknowledge it. You remember after Jacob left for Padam Aram to go find his wife, Esau's house began growing. And he had a large family even before Jacob came back. And remember when Jacob did come back and he was all worried about meeting Esau? Esau was so filled with stuff and people and things that he didn't really, he didn't look at that return the same way Jacob did. He even said when Jacob tried to give him all those herds, I've got enough, I don't need it. That's how big he had gotten just in 20 years. In verse 31 of our passage, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Genesis 36 is a documenting of the fulfillment of God's promises to Esau. He's faithful even to those who do not acknowledge him personally. He is a common kindness, known as a common grace, that many people of earth enjoy. Now, it's fleeting, it's quick, it's tragic to us when we know there's eternity, but there are many people that prosper who do not acknowledge God. And Esau is an example of just this. Edom is the nation that comes from him. Now, that's the first principle that we might know. I would point out a second principle to you as well. That is the place of Edom in the Bible. I mentioned to you that it is introduced here through Esau, and then it repeats throughout the Old Testament and into the New. It says in verse 8 of our passage, So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. That's the southern part of Israel. You can imagine an east-west trip between Syria and Egypt. That's where Esau or Edom is. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. The hill country, this is important. He's occupying southern Canaan, which is southern Palestine or Israel. That's where Edom grows and spreads. Edom's bordered, uh, borders Israel to the southeast at this time, but really is part of the promised land. Between the trade routes, between Syria and Egypt, and for generations the Edomites controlled caravans that tried to go through that way. They weren't a particularly powerful nation, but they were carefully defended. They lived in an area that was full of mountains and crags and ro- in the rocks in canyons that they could hide in. If they got into battles and they went out in battle, they could come back to their place. It would be hard to get them. Get them. Some of you have traveled to Israel and gone to Petra or Petra. Uh, that's the land in the south. And that's where they, the Edomites lived. So they would get in the canyon and enemies, no matter how many there were, they could take care of defending themselves in a canyon. So the Edomites lasted a long time because of their defense mechanisms, but they spread out from there as well. Edom and their related nations, they come up over and over again in the Old Testament from this point. They harassed the Israelites in all their forms for centuries. On one occasion, they unsuccessfully attempted to conquer and overthrow Jehoshaphat when he was king. It was close, but God held them off. Then, later with Nebuchadnezzar, when Judah was falling, 
The Edomites watched the Babylonians pillage the temple, destroy the temple. They, they mocked Israel while the temple was being torn down. They were brutal towards the Jews who tried to escape to Edom, killing many of them. Cruel actions. This is what prompts the psalm writer to say in Psalm 137 with reference to Edom. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem when they would destroy the temple. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to the foundations. They're quoting what the Edomites said. Then the psalmist says, O daughter of Babylon, Edom, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. So the Edomites are a perpetual antagonist to Israel. Even in the intertestamental period, when the Old Testament's over, and there's several hundred years before the New Testament opens, you have the Maccabeans, the Jewish leaders at that time, fighting off the, the Edomites. At one time, they subjugated the Edomites, the Maccabeans did, and then intermarried with them. They became one people who eventually become the Samaritans. So this is the way the Edomites weave throughout the Bible's story. And the people that you would be most familiar with that are Edomites would be the kings of the Herodian line. Herod the Great was from Edomia, which is formerly Edom. So the Herodian kings, Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa, all in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in the books of Paul, in the book of Acts, these are Edomites. They're not full Jews. They're intermarried now with them and intermixed with them. And this is why the, the Jews in Jerusalem despise them so much. They would call him Herod the Edomite as a way of putting him in his place among the Israelites. So Edom is a particular place of focus in the scriptures. So that's why we have this genealogy in part. But there are three other biblical principles that are wider to be applied that I want you to see also when we read through a genealogy like this. We're reading the story of a man and his children in his house. Esau is a picture of the futility of living just for this life and building kingdoms just here. That's all he really cared about was the here and the now. We know this from the beginning of our introduction to Esau. He's the model case of a pure materialist. He despised his birthright because the birthright had spiritual connotations. He wasn't interested in that. He had no spiritual attachments. In Genesis 25, verse 34, Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Moses adds, thus Esau despised his birthright. We know he's not a spiritual man at all. I know we might say everybody's spiritual because they have a soul, but many people do not acknowledge a spiritual reality. This is true of Esau. This is how he lived his life. And he built his whole progeny with that philosophy. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So in the New Testament, he's memorialized as one who is completely carnal, worldly-minded, bound to the stuff of earth, very temporary in his outlook. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau is a picture of impulsivity. He, he reacted to the sensual. Whatever he felt, he went after it. He didn't care about the afterlife. He was a man of this earth. In fact, you could decide something a bit by how he names his children. We don't know all the linguistic connections. There's lots of challenges with translating that section, let alone pronouncing it. 
But as you look at some of these names, we do know what some of them mean. Elon, for instance, means region where deer are found. Now, personally, I like that name. However, it's really tied to just animals that he saw. So Zibian is a hyena. Deshaun is a gazelle. Karen is a turtle. Aaron is a mountain goat. Thanks, Dad, I'm a mountain goat. But he named people uh, for what he saw around him, the stuff of earth. He was a hunter. And that's what he tied himself to. There were not those names that had divine connotations like you see in so many people at this time. Even pagans would name their kids after some pagan deity. Whereas in the case of Esau, he was so bound to earth, this is how he looked at his whole progeny, the names of the animals on the earth. It says in verse 6 of our passage, something else that indicates his worldly thinking. Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, beasts, property, everything he got in Canaan. Then it says, it's a subtle verse, but notice it, the last part of verse 6, he went into a land away from his brother Jacob. There's something more to be gathered here than just the fact that they were running out of space. That's true, the text says it. But away from his brother Jacob, not just physically, but to be completely disconnected. He wasn't interested in Jacob's view of things and Jacob's view of life. Really, the Edomites were like any other great renowned family of the world that we may know. It could be the Rockefellers, it could be the Kennedys, the Fords, the Waltons for that matter. I'm not saying there aren't believers to and fro, but when you think of those names, you associate them with something related to their name, and it's not generally a spiritual thing. And there are many families that rise and fall over time. They have their time, it's brief, but they're gone. There's a warning here laden, I think, that physical blessing on the outside that may look great in a given family or an organization, physical blessing doesn't mean they're spiritually blessed. It does not mean they're favored by God because they have all that stuff. It's dangerous to judge based on temporal fame or possessions. Esau, we would judge to say, look at that household, look at the kings that come and the dukes and the chiefs and such, but how many Edomites do you know? Have you met an Edomite lately? They're gone. Calvin said, for although Esau, with his posterity, took the precedence, compared to Jacob at the moment, yet his dignity was like a bubble, which is comprised under the figure of the world, a bubble of the world, and which quickly perishes. Since either is no permanent condition, there is no permanent condition outside the kingdom of God. The splendor attributed to him is evanescent, fleeting, and the whole of his pomp departs like the passing scene of the stage. You know, I couldn't help thinking that this is America. America's an Edom. Once great, but fading fast. Another Egypt, another Assyria, another Babylon, another Greece, soon will be another America. All cities of man. If the Lord tarries, there will be a day when ancient history is studied, and America will be just another blip in the pages in the annals of history. Another fallen empire that imploded upon itself. That's the futile way of worldly living. That's the danger of looking away from the spiritual reality and thinking you've got to figure it figured out because we're just so sophisticated. We're so self-providing. Rich and famous, yet poor and forgotten. That's really Esau's legacy. Prosperous then, but bankrupt now. Popular, but pretty much anonymous. We only, no one else outside this building today, maybe on earth, is talking about the Edomites. Unless someone else is in Genesis 36. Popular yet anonymous. The world gained, but the soul lost. If, if we give no place to spiritual priorities, if we don't recognize that that's where the truth lies, then temporal things 
worldly things will flood our hearts and we'll be dominated by them. That's the story of Esau, but it could be the story of anybody. Spiritual priorities, knowing what's true behind the scenes, if you will, help put material, the material world in its proper place. I love what James Boyce said. This is the problem with our civilization. Spiritual concerns have been eliminated and selfish physical indulgence has moved in to take God's place. Calvin said long before Boyce, there's no reason why the faithful who slowly pursue their way should envy the quick children of the world and their rapid succession of delights. There are a couple other biblical principles or themes that come forth from this genealogy. We also see a comparison between Edom in chapter 36 and then a comparison of the house and lineage of Jacob that starts in chapter 37. We see two kinds of people in the world demonstrated by God yet again. This is not the first time in Genesis we've seen this. Now, we can be confused by the many divisions that we do make. We name people by their nations or by their race, by their socioeconomic class, by what borders they live in, by the religion even, all these ways in which mankind will divide people up. But there is fundamentally only one division of humankind, and we find it here depicted even in this genealogy. There's the people of the world and the people of God, the non-covenant people and the covenant people. Those who are covered by God's grace, who are in Christ, and those who are not. The Old Testament has already been telling us this story. Cain and the Sethites. Ishmael and Isaac. Esau and Jacob. It was 410 AD when Rome was finally falling to the vice Goths. Rome was falling. Roman leaders tried to blame Christianity for the fall of Rome. Remember, In 310, Constantine legalized Christianity, and it started blossoming and growing. But it was at the same time that Rome was already falling at that time. But now it's really towards the end, a hundred years later. Augustine takes to writing a defense and an explanation for what's really happening. In fact, Augustine argues for the opposite. He said the only reason why Rome lasted this long is because of Christianity. His concluding analysis is what reminds us of a truth, a biblical truth. He said, in his observation, there are really two cities as you observe humanity. There is the city of man and the city of God. The city of man has no regard for God, goes about its way. It's got all sorts of gifts from God, talents, intelligence, beauty. There's many things in the city of man. But the longer the city of man goes without acknowledging God, it becomes more and more under God's judgment and will fade, always will fade. I just named some of the different great empires that came and went because they basked in their being in the city of man. But the city of God, that transcends, that's eternal, that's tied to Christ the King, and that transcends borders and peoples, and it spreads, maybe not in the locale, the locale may fall in the city of man, but the city of God will still remain. This is a true, a biblical truth, that whatever God does with his people, they will never die. The gates of hell will not ever beat the church. But we recognize there's an invisible kingdom, and it's one that grows by Christ the King, seated at the right hand of the Father, growing and calling to himself all those who are part of his kingdom. Well, the city of man, it will come and go, come and go, come and go, and ultimately fade. Esau is a picture of this. It's an amazing thing. If, you, if I could say all this about Esau and the blessings he received, what are our blessings going to be? This is what Boyce said also. If God blesses so abundantly those that are not chosen like Esau... 
What is the magnitude of his blessings for those who are chosen? If non-spiritual people experience such outpourings of mere common grace, how great must the special grace of the regenerate be? Esau also becomes something else in this, still thinking of two kinds of people in the world. He becomes the scriptural example of what a reprobate is. Simply meaning someone who's not elect, the non-elect. The nations versus the covenant people. That God chooses to place his grace upon some and not others. Malachi, the prophet, was writing to Israel to jar them from their spiritual stupor. They're the people of God and they were not acting like the people of God. So what would you say as a prophet speaking to people who are supposed to be believers, say they believe, confess it, like Malachi talking to the Israelites, what would you say to jar them? Well, this is what he says by God's Spirit in Malachi 1. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Malachi, speaking for the Lord, says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? He calls you to the attention that don't, Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Just a few hundred years later, we already see Edom getting eaten away. And he's saying, don't you see what Esau that I hated? Jacob I've loved. You're of Jacob? Act like it. So he's using Esau, the reprobate, as a reason for people who are believers to stop acting like they're reprobates. So the Apostle Paul, to no surprise, draws on this same picture using Esau as a model of the, the one who's non-elect or unelect. Romans 9, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, uh, works but because of him who calls. She was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Jacob is a picture of the reprobate who lives for the world, loves the world, is not concerned with the world to come, untouched by God's hand of saving grace. Unbelief. That's the reality. Now, a practical question that will often come, and obviously this passage isn't all about election, but an obvious question that comes from people when they hear the doctrine of election, which is, throughout the scriptures. Am I elect? To which I always say, because this was, I remember thinking the same thing myself early in my Christian walk. How do I know I'm elect? Well, if you trust that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to pay for your sins, you are elect. Because the elect person doesn't believe that. Elect, or a non-elect person doesn't believe that. A non-elect person doesn't care They make up their own thing. It may be religious, but it's all-inclusive, and God ends up being no kind of moral judge or no kind of righteous figure in the end because it's really whatever I think goes. Whoever I think is in is in. That's how the the non-elect person thinks. The elect person is convicted by their sins and know they need Christ. Now, it's true. Sin will enter the life of a believer and mess up your assurance of election, your assurance of salvation. But even that conviction you feel, that doubt and that wonder, you feel, is God calling you back to deeper dependence upon Christ? Actually, I tell people when they have that worry, am I elect? If you're worrying about that, you believe Jesus, I'm saying that's a good indication you're elect because you're not going to care otherwise. So even the conviction you feel could be a great gift from God. But there's no doubt 
there is, at least at the backdrop, the theme of election here, the two kinds of people live in the world. Those who are of Edom, those who are of Jacob. Which one are you of? We've had this question posed to us before throughout Genesis. Are you from the seed of the woman? Are you in line with that seed or the seed of the devil? Those are the options for all of our divisions. Finally, I would draw your attention to an overarching theme of Scripture or about Scripture that I think rings so thoroughly true when you read a genealogy of such precision and care. This is yet another indication of the perfections of Scripture, how we can trust the Bible to be the Word of God. There are more than just this, but when you read this, just the elevation of the language, the carefulness of the details, it it speaks to us from another world. This is not the Koran, which anybody could have wrote. This is something far greater and more magnificent and heavenly when you see it. And it's on every page, but certainly in a genealogy like this. The detail in biblical history, the God-breathedness of it, that God inspired human authors to write. And think about the human author here. I love to contemplate God's providence and how he picks who he picks. Here we have Moses. Why Moses? Why would Moses be such a good candidate for writing these first foundational books of the Scriptures. Well, think of Moses. He was raised at that time in the most learned center of education on the globe, most likely. Maybe something in the Orient that we're not familiar with, but most people look at Egyptian culture as the height of learning and education when we're talking 2000 BC. And he grows up with all that background into 1500 when he lived. He's through that that whole educational system of Egypt that would have known the history around the mathematics that they understood, um, the history that they would have studied, the engineering that they... Think of all the things that come from Egypt, and this is his learning. So he has all this that he brings into this, this whole calling that God places upon him. He knows multiple languages. He knows the stories of various places. And God calls him in the midst of his slave people to be able to be the instrument of God's inspired word. And so the perfections of Scripture flow from this. We think of these as God inspiring, that is his spirit superintending over someone like Moses to give us his word. We know because he does this that that word is without error. It's completely trustworthy, which is its infallibility, its trustworthiness. If that's the case, if God's the author and he's kept it free from error and it's trustworthy and it's incapable of error because it's God's word, then we know that it's authoritative in our lives. It should be our rule for faith and practice. And it's sufficient for everything we need to know. These are the perfections of Scripture that a genealogy like this in a book that's 1,500 years old is so clear on, so above and apart from other documents of its era. We can be sure of this trustworthiness. I love what Warfield said. The trustworthiness of the Scriptures lies at the foundation of trust in the Christian system of doctrine and is therefore fundamental to the Christian hope and life. These perfections, um, again, on every page, but I would submit to you, even a difficult-to-read genealogy strikes at this thinking, this doctrine once again. Matthew Barrett, who's a current professor at Midwestern, said, well, if God is Scripture's author, then we should not divorce the character of the divine author from the character of his divine speech. After all, this is God's word we are describing. Scripture has many human authors, but it ultimately originates from one divine author. 
While God and the text are distinct, nevertheless, the text is his speech act. It should not surprise us that it reflects his character. Communicable attributes characterize his communicable speech, and truthfulness is one of them. As the God of truth and the God who is truth, he speaks a word of truth. The truthfulness of the text reflects the truthfulness of its divine author. This is what prompts David under the Holy Spirit in Psalm 19 to say, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The genealogy of Esau demonstrates several biblical themes. God is the promise-keeping God. We know the theme of Edom and the Edomites. We see in Esau the futility of living so worldly, so temporarily. We see the division of two kinds of people with Esau being an example of one. And we see the infallibility, the perfections of Scripture when we read a passage like this. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we read in your word that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. O Lord, please take this consideration of Genesis 36 and bind the biblical themes that we have seen highlighted to our hearts this day. Ultimately, give us great security in knowing that we are not of Edom by your grace, but of Jacob. We thank you for this through the ultimate succeeder of Jacob, the Lord Jesus himself. Amen.